0: Pray with me one more time. God, what a precious, precious promise that we just sang about. That your goodness faileth never. That your steadfast love and faithfulness continue day by day. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Even when we are not faithful, Lord. You remain faithful to your promises. That is unimaginable. And Lord, that is something we desperately need. As we come to you and to your word for nourishment, we rely on that promise that your word will not go out void, but that it will accomplish all of your purposes. We rely on the truth that we do not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. And Lord, we need soul food this morning. In the midst of a weary week, we need to be reminded of where we stand with you and why we stand there. And so God, I pray that as we go about studying your word through the lens of this catechism question, that you would help us, that you would work in your spirit to make your word come alive in our hearts, breed in us faith, and I pray that you would help me as I speak the words that you've given me to be faithful to what your word says. So would you help us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, friends. If you've got a Bible with this morning, go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 22. We are in the New City Catechism. Again, it is Catechism Sunday. And that looks a little different because we have so many scriptures we go to. I tend to use the slides and put the scriptures up there rather than have us turn everywhere. But Matthew 22 is a particularly foundational text for this morning. And so it'll be good to have our Bibles open there. We are going through the New City Catechism. We are on question number seven. And remember, our goal for these sermon series, these Catechism Sundays is to help us be grounded in the basics of the faith. And what I want us to see as we go through is that these catechism question and answers are a useful grounding in the faith because they are not just made up things, but they are faithfully summarizing what the scripture teaches on the particular question at hand. This catechism question of The catechism question, excuse me, that we're going to study today of what does the law of God require is faithfully summarized in the answer that we'll see this morning. We want to show that it's a faithful summary, why it's true, but we also want to hear and apply this truth from the scripture. Why does it matter that this is true? Why does it matter that this is what the Bible teaches on this particular topic? So that's what we're going to go about this morning and do by way of starting, I want us to see how these questions actually connect to one another. So our, our first question that I want to connect us to is one we read already in worship this morning. How and why did God create us? And the answer is that God created us, male and female, in his own image to know him, love him, <clears throat> excuse me, live with him, and glorify him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to his glory. We saw that last little bit because God is creator. It's right that we, as created people, live to his glory. The natural question that flows out of that, which we covered last month, is how can we live to the glory of God? How can we glorify God? We saw last week, or excuse me, last month, that the catechism answers this question saying we glorify God by enjoying him, loving him, trusting him, and by obeying his will, commands, and law. So question number seven flows out of that. We talked a lot last month about enjoying God, loving him, what that looks like, trusting him. And we didn't talk as much about the role of the law of God in helping us do that. And so that's the connection with this morning. The next question in the catechism, what does the law of God require? What do we mean when we say obeying his will, commands, and law? And so this morning, we're going to look at this question. I want to read this question to us, and I want us as a congregation to respond with the answer together, to help our minds engage with this answer. So Sojourner's Church, what does the law of God require? Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done, and what God commands should always be done. Amen. That's what we're going to be unpacking this morning. This answer, what does the law of God require? Personal, perfect, perpetual obedience, etc., is relatively easy to show that this is a faithful summary from Scripture. That's why I wanted us to open up to Matthew 22, because this middle of this question that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves, is explicitly taught by Jesus in the Gospels. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40, to see that. It's a familiar command from Jesus, that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God and love neighbor. This is Jesus' summary of the law and the prophets. This is the summary from Jesus of what the law of God requires, right? It's pretty easy to see that this answer is a faithful summary of scripture. It's easy to think about the words of Jesus here and Amen them and say, yes, that's what God requires from us, that we love him with everything and that we love our neighbor as ourself. But it is much harder to really let this command sink in. It is much harder to walk out this command because we tend to easily amen this command, but we tend to think about it and interpret it through the lenses of this world. For example, we might limit the scope of this. That's what some of the disciple, or some of the, um, some of the folks interacting with Jesus, some of the crowds were doing. One desired to justify himself, and so he said to Jesus, "Who is my neighbor?" Right, desiring to limit the scope of this command to love his neighbor to those who he wanted to love, or desiring to limit the scope of this command to love God with all. Sometimes we limit it to what is quick or easy or what we want to do. We struggle when we have to love and it's costly, right? That's what Jesus' point in the parable of the Good Samaritan is, crossing these boundaries to love radically even someone who was an enemy. Sometimes this is hard to hear because we constrict the scope of this command to love God with all and to love our neighbor as ourselves to a list of rules, to a list of do's and don'ts. This is what the Pharisees really were good at in Jesus' time, Right? tithing, mint, and cumin, paying attention to these small details of the law. But Jesus accused them of neglecting the weightier matters of the law because it didn't directly tell them to do something for their neighbor. They neglected to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. We do that same thing. We struggle to love when it isn't clear how we ought to love. Sometimes we take this command to love God with all and we define the love By worldly standards. See, we're constantly being discipled by the world around us. What does it mean to love my neighbor? What does it mean to love someone that is different from me? Our culture tells us that the way we radically love neighbor is through always affirming them. Always always being kind to them by their standards. But the law of God tells us something different. It tells us that love of neighbor lines up with God's good order in creation and God's good design in the world that he has made. We struggle when we define this love of God and love of neighbor by worldly standards. Sometimes we neglect this command because we don't consider the serious consequences for failing at it. We wouldn't hold ourselves or others accountable the same way God holds us for failing to love. We, we think, we understand, you know, you all have bad days. That happens, right? We're unloving sometimes to one another and so we cut each other slack and we tend to read that back into God and think, well, God gets it, God understands. And we make God out to be more of a grandfatherly figure who kind of puts these standards and says, this is what you must do, but then when we don't, doesn't really expect us to meet him. But that's not what the law of God shows about God's character and nature either. We must See this command and consider it carefully and seriously. We need to do that this morning because this command, this requirement of God, that we love him with all and that we love our neighbor as ourself is the backdrop against which the gospel shines incredibly brightly. We will not rightly apprehend the beauty of the promises that we have in Jesus if we don't learn to take seriously the law of God. Because if the law of God is not serious, then we have no need of Jesus. But if the law of God is incredibly serious and weighty, as it is, then we desperately need Jesus. And so that's what I want us to see this morning. I want us to hear the weight and the magnitude of these commands. And I want us to see that against the backdrop of those commands, the promises of Jesus are precious and worthwhile and good news indeed. In order to help us see this, we must ask the question, what about this command is distinctly Christian? It's not terribly abnormal in our culture to say, love some higher power, worship some higher power, and be nice to your neighbor. That's not necessarily distinctly Christian. But the way this command is given is distinctly Christian and points us to Jesus in a couple ways. The first one I want us to consider is this connection between love and obedience. That God's law actually requires what I call obedient love. We see this connection, right? Per- personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. What God forbids should never be done and what God commands should always be done. There's, there's obedience language built into this answer, isn't there? And there's love language. It's both. It's not one or the other. Our culture would see the connection between obedience and love as perhaps an oxymoron. How can you be commanded to love someone? How can love that is required be true love, right? But the Bible holds these two together and says that love and obedience or obedient love is intimately connected in the law of God. The closest example we have is the covenant of marriage, right? When we make promises to one another, we both have an obligation to love and we have a desire to love because God gives us affection for one another as well. This connection in the law of God between obedience and love is absolutely essential and it's taught in the scriptures and I want us to see that. Jesus gives us a hint at where we can see it when he summarizes his teaching by saying these, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He's pointing us back to say, where do we see this love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? Where do we see those things in the scriptures? Jesus himself is actually quoting from the scriptures. The first place we're going to look is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. This is the Shema. This is Israel hearing the commands of the Lord. This is what they would write in their little scrolls and put them in their little phylacteries or on their doorposts to remind them of this command. This is the most central command for Israel. God's law requires this obedient love. Hear, O Israel, he says. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This command to love the Lord your God with all, intimately connected to the commands and rules and laws of the Lord. This obedience and love bound together The same thing with neighbor love. Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is how Jesus summarized all of the commands in the law, that we're not directly related to love of God are related to love of neighbor, right? Leviticus is full of you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. All of these rules about how you relate to one another in the community, all of these rules about how you relate to your neighbor are all summed up in you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The love of neighbor, though, is not primary. It's the love of God that's primary in this command. In God's law, we start with obedient love towards God and that grounds then our love of neighbor. Out of that flows our love of neighbor. That's why, that's why after saying you shall love your neighbor as yourself, God says, I am the Lord. We see that over and over in Leviticus, a command to how to treat your neighbor and then a statement, I am the Lord. Grounded in the character of love for God is love of neighbor. These are intimately connected, and they are all summed up in this call towards obedient love. We might think that this obedient love is just Old Testament stuff, right? Like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The, the way it's cast here, that sounds Old Testament. Leviticus is Old Testament. We're under the new covenant. We're not under the law, but under grace, we might say. But this command and this way of thinking about relating to God and his law is carried over into the New Testament by Jesus, certainly in Matthew 22. But even by Jesus in John, as he's talking to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience and love tied together. And First John, even in the early church, it's tied together. First John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. It's talking to Christians. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God. To keep his commandments. Obedience and love tied together. And his commandments, John writes, are not burdensome. So friends, the love of God and love of neighbor is a matter of obedience. It's not just emotional or affective, but it is effective, a desire and a duty. And together we can call that obedient love. It's a covenant-shaped love, which we'll talk more about in a little bit. This kind of obedient love has certain standards, has certain Ways that it looks that are beyond what we could even begin to fathom on our own. We see it summarized in the catechism that the law of God requires not just obedience, but personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. I want to see that this is what scripture teaches us about the nature of the law of God. Our obedient love must be, first of all, personal We see in the Old Testament, in places like Jeremiah 17, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God will deal with you how you act. Paul picks this up in Romans when he says this in Romans 2, verse 6 through 11. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Paul is arguing here in Romans that the Jews and the Greeks, both being under sin, are both worthy of of the wrath and condemnation of God. Both have failed to walk in this obedient love of God and individually they are each responsible for their failure because obedient love must be personal. Not only that, but obedient love must be perfect. Personal perfect and perpetual obedience. Obedient love must be perfect. God calls for his people in Leviticus to be holy as he is holy. All over and over and over in the Old Testament, the sacrificial laws show us this call to be holy, to be set apart, to be clean. And that's picked up even in the New Testament. He calls his people to be blameless in Deuteronomy 18, 13. Perfection required of them because he himself is holy and blameless. Not only that, but the obedient love must not stop obedient love that is personal and perfect for a time is not sufficient. It has to last. It has to persevere. It has to be perpetual. Our obedient love must be perpetual. Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13, and then 11, one talks about this. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. The Lord requires obedient love from you. How long? Verse Chapter 11, verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Always. The expectation is that it continues This personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. This call for the obedient love to be this drastic continues in the New Testament. Jesus expands this call in his sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 5. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5? At the end of The section we read in Matthew 22, in verse 40, Jesus said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He's referring back to previous teaching he did in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about the law and the prophets. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. The kingdom of heaven. Friends what we see in here. Is Jesus picking up. This theme of the law and the prophets. And. Showing us. That this obedient love. That the law and the prophets call for. Is perpetual. Is perfect. Is personal. He calls for it to be perpetual. When he says don't think that I've come. To abolish the law or the prophets. Verse 17. I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. He calls for it to be personal when he talks about in verse 19. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, whoever, anyone, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. Our response to the commandments individually matters, Jesus says. And he calls for perfection when he says, unless I, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Throughout this sermon, Jesus escalates what the Jews had received as the commands of God. They thought they understood what the law of God required. They had limited the scope and defined it narrowly. And Jesus expands this call for perfection, particularly in drastic, drastic ways. For example, in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 22, just shortly after where we just read. He calls for obedient love that must be perfect. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment, right? That's taking from the commandment of God, from the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and saying you shall not murder. But I say to you, verse 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who, uh, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is expanding this command and saying, it's not just love your neighbor by not murdering them, but it's love your neighbor by not being angry with them. It's love your neighbor by not insulting them or calling them you fool. And it's certainly more than that, right? It's loving your neighbor as God has loved you and as you naturally love yourself. Jesus is expanding this call for perfection, even in how we treat our neighbor's or excuse me, even in how we treat our enemies. Verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5, he says this. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, that's never what God's law said. It said to love your neighbor as yourself. And the Jews had adapted that. Well, that must mean we hate our enemy. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Jesus is calling for a radical love of neighbor that exceeds the norm of our culture. Right? that exceeds the norm of what we would want to do, reaching out in love even to our enemies. This is the kind of perfection that the law of God calls for. This kind of obedient love that is perfectly loving in this way. As Jesus concludes in Matthew five forty eight, this section, he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. There's no escaping the call for perfection in response to the law of God, even from Jesus himself, which sometimes we might think, yeah, God wants us to be perfect, but Jesus is, Jesus is more friendly than that and is willing to let us get by with some things and knows that we're, we're, but, we're but dust, remembers that. But friends, even Jesus calls us to be perfect as God is perfect. This is why the catechism question ends with this summary. What God forbids should never be done. And what God commands should always be done. It's pretty clear, right? Obey God. In all things, including the call to love him and love neighbor. Any failure to do that. Any failure at all to love God as we ought. Or to love our neighbor as ourselves, Any failure to be perfect in loving God and loving neighbor is catastrophic to us. We see in James 2, 8-10, he summarizes this engagement with the law. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And here's, listen to this. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Whoever keeps the whole law but gets angry at their neighbor fails in all of it. Whoever keeps the whole law but looks with envy on someone else fails all of it. Whoever keeps the whole law but does not love God fails. It's catastrophic when we fail because we see in Romans 6.23 the wages of sin is death. This is what it means to sin, to fail, to do what the law of God requires, which is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the reality is, friends, that all of us have suffered catastrophic failure. All of us fail to keep the law of God. What do we do? What hope is there in the law? I think the pointer to hope within the law, the pointer to hope within this question even, is this category of obedient love. You see, obedient love is covenantal, as I mentioned. Obedient love is covenantal. If we look and see how God calls his people to obedient love, we see that initiating that obedient love is God's covenantal love itself. God's love for a people chosen by him deuteronomy 7 6 to 8 for you are a people holy to the lord your god the lord your god has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples but it is because the lord loves you And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see, God loved Israel, his people, with a covenant love, a love that had promised to be their God and to love them. He set his sights on them and chose to make them his treasured possession. And so he made promises to them. And his love for them acted out is keeping those promises. Out of that love towards his people, he calls them to return that love with obedient love. Know therefore, he says, verse 9 of Deuteronomy 7, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. To a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Verse 11. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. In other words, because God is faithful and keeps his covenant steadfast love, you be faithful with obedient love. You be faithful to keep the law of the Lord that you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. Because God himself is faithful, you be faithful. That's what God was calling his people to. The law of God, one way of talking about what it requires is that it requires that we respond rightly to God's initiating love towards us. And the right response to a God who loves us and chooses us out of the peoples of the earth to be his treasured possession, the right response to that is fidelity, faithfully loving him with our all and loving our neighbor as ourself because our neighbors bear his image. The problem is God's people don't usually respond like that, right? Throughout the history of Israel, we've seen God's people be stubborn over and over again. Even in Deuteronomy 9, 6-7, he says this, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. In other words, the promised land that he was bringing them into out of his covenant faithfulness. It's not because they've deserved it. For you are a stubborn people. Verse 7, remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 10, he says to the people of Israel, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Part of the mark of the covenant was circumcision among the male offspring. And God was calling them and saying, you know what, just because you're marked out as my people, the treasured possession, doesn't mean your hearts are marked out for me. Doesn't mean you're actually loving me with all as you should, because you are being stubborn and you are rebellious and grumbling. And it is all because you have an uncircumcised heart that's bound up in sin. The reality is that God's call for obedient love that is right and good, cannot be answered by us when our hearts are bound up with sin. We read in Romans chapter 8 that the heart that is bound up in sin, the heart that is engaged with the flesh, cannot please God. It cannot keep his law. It cannot because instead we're filled with stubbornness. This is why it's so important that God's covenantal love grounds this call for our obedient love because God made promises and he's not going to let a little thing like our stubbornness stand in the way of keeping those promises. And so what does he do in the history of redemption? He says, you know what? Your hearts need to be circumcised and you can't do that. I'm going to do that. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. God promises this that after his people go into exile and receive the right punishment for their sin and rebellion and turn to him and call out to him, he'll redeem them, he'll bring them back into the land, and he'll do this, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. If you know your Bible, you know that this is part of the promise of the new covenant. This is part of the promise that we were waiting for in Jesus. That though we were stubborn, though we by nature have uncircumcised hearts, though we by nature have hearts hardened in sin, that the new covenant that God promised is that one day he will circumcise the hearts of his people. One day he will take the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. One day he will sprinkle our hearts clean. One day he will give us a heart with the law written on it that loves God and loves our neighbor. One day he will do this. This is the promise that he gave. And he accomplished this promise. This is why this makes the gospel shine so brightly. Because the way he made you and I his treasured possessions and all who trust in Jesus, his treasured possession, is by giving his most treasured possession, his son. To do what we could not. Jesus came, he said, in Matthew 5, 17, not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them. Jesus came with love that was obedient and personal. Jesus lived the kind of life we should have lived. He loved obediently and it was personal. This is why it's so important that Jesus actually came in the flesh, right? John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That actually matters because God's law requires personal obedience. And Jesus did. He said in John fourteen thirty one: I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. Jesus obeyed personally himself. Not only that, but Jesus' obedient love was perfect. Not like ours where we stumble and try, but we fail. Jesus did not fail. Hebrews 5, 7-9. In the days of his flesh, when he was personally present, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. There is none like Jesus that obeyed perfectly, that perfectly loved God with all, and perfectly loved his neighbor and even his enemies. Jesus himself did it, and it never stopped. Jesus didn't go most of the way and then veer off course, and call down legions of angels to rescue him, did he? Philippians 2.8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' death on the cross was his obedient love towards the Father who had sent him to accomplish this mission of fulfilling the law, fulfilling what God's righteous law requires for you and for me. The good news of the gospel is that not only did Jesus accomplish what we should have accomplished, but that by God's mercy and grace, it is credited to us. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Jesus' obedient love counts for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do god's righteous law we saw in psalm psalm 19 this morning is perfect it's not a problem with the law But because of our sin, the law could not accomplish what it called for. God himself, in his son Jesus, accomplished it. That's what Paul is saying. God has done, verse 3, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now that we are in Christ Jesus, his obedient love that he gave to the Father is counted as our obedient love towards the Father. And his obedient love that he loved neighbor with is counted as our obedient love towards neighbor. It's counted as us fulfilling the requirements of the law in Jesus. This same obedient love of Jesus then transforms us into God's treasured possession. 1 Peter Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God made us into his treasured possession by giving up his own most treasured possession, Jesus Christ. He did this and accomplished this in Jesus so that you and I, not just God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament, but you and I and all who come to Jesus can be transformed into this people for his own possession that rest not in our own works and our own ability to keep the requirements of God's law, but that rest in Jesus' keeping of it for us. This then in turn, grounds our obedience. You see, the law is still good in many ways. The law of God requiring that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself is still good and has not stopped being what is required of us as God's people. But now we live differently, not to try to make, meet that law so that we can be counted as God's people, We live now out of having met that law in Christ Jesus, and we continue to live that way by putting our trust in him. Paul captures this in Romans 8, verses 12 to 17. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself. Sorry about that. I clicked the wrong button. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit himself bears witness. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Notice in that, Paul is saying it's not just that we have this new identity as sons and daughters of God, children of God who can cry, Abba, Father. That is the root and the ground out of which then we respond to the faithfulness and love of God with our own obedient love, empowered by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. This means and looks like in the new covenant under Christ, repenting of our failure to love God and neighbor and putting our trust in Jesus Christ who perfectly keeps our covenant. And then out of that new identity as debtors to mercy, responding with the kind of obedient love that the covenant calls for living rightly in response to God's kindness to us in Christ. That makes the gospel such, such brighter, friends, because we now get the privilege of living like we should have in Christ Jesus because of the work that he has done. We get the privilege of doing that instead of suffering the consequences that the law of God tells us that we should deserve. In Jesus we have been shown mercy and now we respond by loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and by loving our neighbor as ourselves. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for your mercy to us in Christ Jesus that you did not leave us in our stubbornness, in the uncircumcision of our heart, in Leave us in our suicidal embrace of sin. But God, that you sent your most treasured possession, Jesus, to make us a treasured possession. God, I pray that you would help us live now in response to that beautiful exchange that you have made in response to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you help us live now as people who love you with all, empowered by your Holy Spirit, and who love our neighbor and even our enemy, empowered by the Spirit of Christ who dwells within us. I pray that you would help us do these things out of obedient love for you, our Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.